uh, July 10 uh, lecture, I'm sorry, July 10, 2011, uh, lecture discussion number 40 on the Book of Romans. How is the sound? I'm a little worried that I'm getting a lot of reverb. Am I okay? Everybody hear me fine? I assume the blank stares means yes. Once again, July 10, 2011, lecture discussion number 40 on the Book of Romans. And before we begin, I want to read this um, from a gentleman um, in uh, Germany, I assume. His name is uh, uh, Werner Marty, uh, or Werner Marty. I have no idea, Mr. Marty, if I got any part of that right at all. And he, he says this. Um, he picked this up on Sermon Audio. Uh, Dear Pastor S.A. Chronister, uh, since a few months, I have been listening to different sermons on this station. Your biblical teaching, um, and it says Bible Laus Legun, and I have no idea where Bible Laus Legun is, uh, is the most profound and explicit I have ever heard in my life. I am absolutely exited, and I hope that's excited. I hope he's not leaving so soon. He does say, uh, thank you so much, P.S., excuse my English, it's not my mother language, and it's, it's not mine either. Uh, I don't know what mine is, but uh, I'm absolutely excited about all that uh, I can learn about from it. It also shows me how little I still know about God's word, God himself. Your teaching opens up a formerly unknown realm to me. Thank you ever so much. Can I ask you a question about my understanding regarding free will and predestination? Well, how simple is that? Am I correct in my belief that Adam and Eve had a free will as well as Satan and the angels? Adam and Eve chose to believe Satan. You were doing great, Werner, all the way to there. Adam did not believe Satan. He was not deceived. That's in 1 Timothy. Uh, Eve was deceived. So it's important to know that Adam never believed Satan. However, uh, with regard to free will... Uh, you are correct to believe that Adam and Eve had a free will as well as Satan and the angels. So I'll help you here. Eve chose to be deceived by Satan, resulting in spiritual death when Adam chose to join her in physical death. That also was a free will decision. We are now spiritually dead in sin, unable to choose good and in need to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Werner's words again, and he's absolutely correct in that. Um, so he wanted to know, he needed a clear understanding of free will and God's omniscience, or what some would call predestination. And all that, by the way, is where we're headed. That's coming soon. I won't answer it today, Werner. I'm going to give this to uh, Dave, and he will write you to tell you that I addressed it and that uh, that uh, what we're going to do. That is covered very, very well. If, it, if it's something you have never heard before, I would urge you to come to that particular part. That's in a few weeks. That, Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum and M. R. Dehan wrote the definitive work on this issue. Uh, M. R. Dehan wrote a book called Law or Grace. Notice that it is Law or Grace. And um, um, Mr. Fruchtenbaum, who is probably the foremost living biblical authority today in the world, frankly, uh, wrote a monograph called The Five Warnings in Hebrews that addresses free will and predestination. Actually, it is um, free will versus hyper-Calvinism, which is what masks itself as God's omniscience nowadays. And so uh, that's where I'm sure Werner is discouraged or is uh, wanting to have some clarity. And that well, that's something we will do, like I said, within four or five Sundays, because it shows up where? 
shows up in the book of Romans, of course, which is where we are. Romans is a fabulous place to deal with God's omniscience and your free will. Because if you say you do not have free will, what's your problem? Your problem is, is how, do you, how does God hold you accountable if you have no free will? Because he does hold us accountable. If we are automatons, if we are robots, incapable, then how is it that a robot is condemned when he has no choice but to be a robot? So those are the issues that come to the fore. And uh, as I said, I think those are uh, actually pretty uh, easy to deal with. Have no position that makes God evil or the author of evil. Do not do that. So there's your problem right off the bat, is you have to... You have to have a God is good position, God is omniscient position, God knows all things, he's outside of time, yet somehow we're held accountable and we have free will. So how does that all work? Okay, so here we go now. July 10th, 2011, lecture discussion number 40 on the book of Romans. A very thick mud to wade through today, and, and uh, admittedly my goals are ambitious I'm going to try to explain Professor Edgar Andrews. Um, is that my book, dear? I'm probably going to need that. No? Is it your book? Okay. Um, can I borrow it just in case? That's all I need. You can keep the... Just let this stuff fall onto the ground. Thank you. She was holding my props. I have props today. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to try to explain Professor Edgar Andrews, his arguments uh, to a level that allows everyone to progress... Um, actually, everyone to be drug and, and crawl and wade through uh, his book, which is, as you all know, Who Made God? And I'm trying to do it without it being unbearably tedious, and it remains to be seen how, how well I do, how that will be assessed uh, in hindsight. Trying my best to make this very important for you, because what it is, is armor it is weaponry. It is something you can defend yourself and your family with. And some of you very young here, when I say very young, I mean 35. Uh, some of you need to defend your family soon. And this will help you do that. Um, it is, as I said, important armor. It is weaponry. I, nothing is more sad than to send somebody into a gunfight with a baby bottle um, it, it doesn't end well. That's especially what's happening to our kids today. They're literally fooled by every simple trick this world has to offer, and it is tearing them to pieces. And it is important that the fathers especially, but also the mothers as well, you're both going to be beaten for it if you don't do it. It's important that the fathers and mothers know how to put armor on their kids. If you knew that your children were going into uh, a gunfight, would you let them go out there in their pajamas or would you put a Kevlar vest on them and hand them a, uh, a, an AR-15 at least? Give them a chance. Give them a helmet. I was watching Lori's dad, I think, I don't know for sure, sent us a ballistics uh, test, um, weaponry or firearms, and it showed what happens if you're dumb enough to hide behind a car door, just like in the movies. You're not going to make it. Either is the car door. And if you send your kids out there hiding behind pajamas and car doors, you're going to get them wiped out. And not just in this lifetime, 
you're going to get them wiped out for eternity. And that is why this is so important. And it's that's why I'm doing it. Um, I, my challenge is to make it interesting so that all of you will grasp it and value it. But really, what do I need you to do? I don't need you. What do I want you to do? What's my goal? You have to be able to teach it to somebody. And I realize that it's boring and that it can be overwhelming. It's philosophy and physics. And if you are bored, it isn't the material's fault. It's my fault. I didn't do the job. And that's always the case, by the way. If you ever find something in the Bible that you think is boring or you think the preacher said something that is boring, that is out of Scripture, it's his fault or your fault. It's never the Bible's fault. Anyway, you may have noticed then that I'm not going to address every aspect. Um, but if you need me to, just come up after the sermon, after the main lecture. As you know, there's no minutia that I won't expound on. I don't care how small you think it is. I like it. And I'll bloviate for weeks while you don't get anything from the buffet. So come on up. Uh if you can't get it, I'll explain it. And, and that's also true in your reading assignment, and biblically as well, I'll do my best. But in your reading assignment in Edgar Andrews' Who Made God, if there's something you don't understand, bring it to me. I'm confident that I'll be able to explain it to you. Um, and for those who follow along on the Internet who, have, who are using Edgar Andrews' book, again, it's Who Made God, as an assist to explain Romans chapter 3, 19 through 26, we are currently in Edgar Andrews' book at chapter 10. That's where we are now. We began in chapter 9, and next week is what? Logically, it's chapter 2. And so, everything has a natural order. And if you think perhaps I should go in an order you would like, I submit respectfully that I am going in the right order. Um, and naturally, whose order is it? It's my order. Uh, I am the possessor of the most holy dry erase marker. And thus the rule to he who holds, and this is not a Sanford, I'm really disappointed, but to he who holds the Sanford Expo 2 low odor dry erase black marker goes the power of the sequence. And you must succumb. Resistance is futile, as you know. Words to that effect. But again, for our Internet audience, any questions that I pass by that you wish to have included, um, and, the, and you folks here, but the Internet people, you can send those to Cliffside Office, all one word, cliffsideoffice at alaska.net, and I will read them if they apply to where we are. And if not, I'll answer them for you, but it's really nice when they fit in like Werner's did today, or as some of the others. Okay, where are we? Well, we last left off at the metaphysical implications of the ubiquity of law or the universal universality of law, um, which is the complement and it's the companion uh, to the metaphysical implications of subatomic diameter. Okay, so I have two things that are two parts of a whole. Actually, I have a great big thing. I've given you two parts, but I want you to start out thinking that they're the same. I have the metaphysical implications of the ubiquity of law. The fact that law is universal throughout the creation. I also have the metaphysical implications of subatomic diameter. 
Now, what do I mean by subatomic diameter? I mean the solar system, if you will, model for atoms. Now, that's, by the way, not the correct model. I don't believe that it is. You probably got it in school. You should have been suspicious of it. Subatomic diameter would be, if this were the nucleus of the atom, where is the electron that is orbiting it? I'll draw it smaller for you, but this is incorrect. I'll draw the nucleus and the electron. You've all seen that, right? That's incorrect. It's horribly incorrect. I'm going to make the nucleus this big. How, how far away is the electron? It's three to five miles away, if that were the actual size of the nucleus. So what is in an atom at the subatomic level? A lots of empty space. And that is called, if there's no matter in an electron, what I mean by matter, there's nothing physical in an atom in an electron system, then what do I have? I have mostly empty space. What's in the empty space? Where did the empty space come from? If there's no such thing as a physical reality, then I have an empty space reality. Or if physical reality is so minute, so small, that I can't even really understand it. It's, it's so tiny. What reality is there? And that's called the metaphysical implications of subatomic diameter. Those are two halves of the whole. The ubiquity of law and subatomic diameter. In other words, because law cannot have, universal law throughout the creation cannot have an evolutionary origin and subatomic motion, which is also called what? What is subatomic motion called? I'm boring you, I know. You should look at you. What's subatomic motion called? It's called quantum motion or quantum mechanics because mechanics is interchangeable with motion, right? Quantum mechanics is the study of what's happening at the atomic level. That's what it is. And what is happening at the atomic level, subatomic level? What's happening? What's the answer? We don't really know. Everything you think you know, everything you read in school, probably not true. Probably not even close to true. If you think you've got this figured out, chances are you're really wrong. Not just wrong. What is true? What is real? That's what we're doing here. And law cannot have the ubiquity, the universality of law cannot have an evolutionary origin, and subatomic motion cannot have an evolutionary origin. It cannot have it. It doesn't. It isn't possible. And if there is no evolutionary or monistic or atheistic happenstance or random chaotic origin, which is what we're all told to believe today, is it working, by the way, in the United States? No. Where is it working? United States, 92% believes that there's a God. That's Gallup, by the way. It's not me, and I don't believe Gallup very often, but I'll take him here. Where's it working? Where's the atheism really working? Yeah, it's working in Europe and in Russia and China. Communism is atheistic by nature, by foundation. Okay? And Europe is, is a wasteland now. Except for a few people who write us. Really nice. Thank you, Werner. Banner, probably Werner, I bet you. And uh, uh, 
the Econner Monaguma shoot in Finden. That's, that's me and Werner. We're having a conversation now. And hopefully he knows where his overshoes are. I, I can't find mine. Okay. But anyway, if I can prove to you that evolution is untrue with just these two, I have thousands more. But I can prove it with just these two right here. And so what am I left with if I am correct? And I, I am correct. Thank you. If I am correct, uh, what am I left with? If there is no uh, physical reality, which is what number two is saying, and if I have a universal law, then I have to ask, what is real if it's not physical, and where did the law come from? And I'm left with what Edgar Andrews calls the hypothesis of God, or the supernatural reality. And also I have this other problem to deal with. I have duality, as we covered last week, right? Not last week, two weeks ago. I have duality. Duality is very important, because what have I been trying to say to you for years? I've been trying to say that you have a duality. And what I mean by that is you have a twofold nature. You have a spiritual component and you have a physical component. And the spiritual component or the living soul is immortal and it survives death. That's what I have been saying for two or three years now. I can prove it. You know how I can prove it? Because there's this twofold nature in matter, both particle and wave, both stuff-like and, and thing-like. If you remember that lecture, that was the debate uh, a couple hundred years ago, or better, back to the actually the atomists of, of the uh, Greeks. The atom, by the way, they believed was not divisible. Were they right about that? Atom means not divisible. They thought there was a particle that, uh, did I spell divisible right? Okay, we'll put spelling above it. I'll look it up later. They believed the atom was not divisible. They thought it was the smallest particle. And that's why they said everything is particle-like or everything is thing-like. And then the argument was uh, um, from Aristotle, no, things are not particle-like. They are stuff-like or wave-like. And so we have found out, for example, that light has a twofold nature. It is both particle and wave. It is both stuff-like and it is thing-like. It is both like a wave and it is both like a particle. And we also know about the observer effect. Nothing is real, by the way, we'll get into that next week. Nothing is real unless it's observed. Uh, you'll recognize uh, observer effect. You'll recognize that from George Berkeley's philosophical uh, premise that has never been rebuked or in any way affected. It is holding firm. Those are four things right there that prove that there is a creator God. Those are four pieces of armor. Or if you wish, those are four semi-automatic 50 caliber sniper rifles right there. And if you got those, you're ready to go out there. And if you don't, might as well take your car door or your pajamas and your baby bottle. You're dead meat. You're coming back in a black bag. No offense. I can't help you. And by the way, that was a fake no offense, wasn't it? I really did mean to offend you. None of that can have an evolutionary origin. None of it. 
It cannot, and it is unreasonable and non-defendable to assert otherwise. And we have barely begun to broach the subject, but already, just with those four things, the universality of law, the subatomic diameter that exists in, in at the very microscopic, sub-microscopic level, quantum motion, quantum mechanics, the theory that says that subatomic diameter operates in a quantum um, on a quantum basis, and that doesn't make sense yet, but it will. The fact that there, we have all this duality in light, for example, it's both wave and particle. I'm going to take that, I'm going to go with De Broglie's position, because he, he's been proven correct, that everything has a duality, especially us. And then you add the observer effect. What is the observer effect? Does anybody remember? When I'm observing, for example, the two-slit experiment or the double-slit experiment of uh, Thomas Young, it changes. When it's observed, it becomes a part. Light is a particle. When it's not observed, light is a wave. An observer, an observation. Someone must. What someone perceives affects what is going on with light. How does that work? Who is the observer? Why does this system exist? And so the next time you're standing in the line at Cars Safeway, you say, well, I'm kind of interested in the observer effect. Watch people run to the parking lot. But truthfully, you will find somebody uh, every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I have uh, Michael, Adrian, Xavier. And he wants to know about the observer effect. He didn't make it today. But he will talk me to death. Somebody will ask you. God will put somebody in front of you who wants to know the observer effect. If you know it and if you understand it, and if you explain it to your friends, if you explain it to your neighbors, if you explain it to your children, you have made them impenetrable. They are powerful warriors now. That's what I'm trying to do for you. That's the purpose of this book. Why I brought it in. The Who Made God supplemental text. Does the Bible talk about all of those? Does the Bible talk about duality? Constantly. It starts out in Genesis with duality. Does it talk about the observer effect? That there is no physical reality? John 4.24 You must worship God who is spirit in spirit. There is a spiritual reality. Okay. Does it talk about subatomic diameter? It does in Romans where? Guess, just guess, try. Three, thank you, yay. How about the ubiquity of law? Is there any law in the Bible? Absolutely it is. Where does the universality of law come from? He tells you. Me. If you understand that, you can go into the fight. You won't look, you won't be in diapers anymore. Now, some of you, I know, uh, I just know, I'm going to drag you kicking and screaming into the fight, and I'll have to take your diapers off. I get it. I know who you are. I can see you. Will I drag you in there? Yes, I will. I will beat you. It is probably my greatest teaching skill. Okay. The creation is testifying in those four areas. This is the invisible 
that is clearly seen. The subatomic diameter is the invisible being made clearly seen. It is the eternal power of the Godhead being evident, Romans 1.20. This is the without excuse clause for all mankind being put on display for us. This is the evidence that God exists, that God has a has authority and control and a sovereign plan. This is the trial evidence that is being presented so that every mouth will be stopped and all the world will shut up and everyone will be found guilty, Romans 3.19. Guilty of what? Guilty of disobedience to the Creator God. Guilty of not being thankful. Guilty of not glorifying Him. Guilty of not acknowledging Him. What is atheism at its core? It is God doesn't exist, therefore I have no accountability, I can do whatever I want. Atheism, monism, ultimately becomes hedonism because if you believe there's nothing above you, if you're so ignorant that you think you're the top of the heap, my goodness, you're a speck. Have some humility. But then you end up worshiping yourself. And it's all self. And it becomes selfish. And that's not the plan that he has. You must glorify him, be selfless like he is selfless. Be thankful that he did this for us. And seek him. And seek his, his, seek a knowledge of him, which is wisdom. Okay. That's where we are right now. Before we proceed into chapter 10, those of you who were faithful to read as required, raise your hand if you were faithful to read as required. Yea, you. You get something. I haven't figured out what will get you yet. But what we should get you something because you should have a little, a little thing with gold stars on it and a signature from your parents. Something like that that you can put on your refrigerator. But what did I want you to do? I also wanted you to read page 59. Um, and, and, and we're going to get to that in a minute too, if you remember. But before, we've got to read a few pieces of scripture so that you see how this all starts to fit together. Let's, uh, let's go to Ecclesiastes 3.11, part of the Bible that is generally uh, butchered by almost everyone who tries to explain it, sadly. Because it's very, especially 3:18 through 22. I don't think I've yet to hear or read an opinion on that outside of Elijah D. Buckner that is correct on 3:18 through 22 of Ecclesiastes. But fortunately, we're not going there. That's just me ranting. We're going to 3:11 through 15. Let me start that. He, that's God, has made everything beautiful in its time, or also proper. He has made everything proper in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts. Who is the there in that sentence? He has put eternity in whose hearts? His creation's hearts, the living soul's hearts. That's you and me. Except no one can find out the, the work what God does from beginning to end. Now, first thing you notice there, He has put in your hearts, into my heart, something, eternity. You do not believe, I say it all the time, every time I run into a monist or an atheist, I say, do you believe you're going to cease to exist? Because I know Ecclesiastes 3.11 says they don't believe it. So I make them always do the same thing to me. What's that? Badly lie. It's what they do. 
But I know they don't believe it. No one believes it. How do I know that? It tells me. Eternity is in their hearts. And then it also says this. No one can know what God does from beginning to end. No one can know. And that is very important reason why we study this. Because what is one of the foundation points, one of the foundation stones of quantum mechanics that you need to know? <laughs> Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. We can't know stuff. There's an uncertainty principle. And so, there it is in Ecclesiastes 3. There's a heap, there's a mass of information if I kept going. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. God knows that, that there is nothing better for us to rejoice and to do good in our lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the goodness. It is a gift. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. How long is forever? I think forever. Nothing can be added to it. And nothing taken away from it. What does that mean? If I can't add to something, what is it that I can't add to? We can obviously add to the congregation. uh, But what can I not add something to? Yes, eternity, infinity. God does it that men should fear before Him. That which has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account for what is past. That's critical for you to know. God requires an account of you. This isn't a free ride for us. For you, for me, for anyone. Not a free ride. That is why Werner's question is so important. He's trying to figure out personal accountability versus God's omniscience. That's where we're headed, right? How did he know? I wrote this two weeks ago. We can only, uh, we can't go through all of that. It's five verses, don't have the time. I just want you to notice the time references. The eternity, the beginning, the end, the forever, the already been, and the judgment of what is past, and the judgment that is account, that is the accounting. Okay, Isaiah 57, here we go. Fifty-seven, fifteen. For thus says the High and Lofty One. Let me write that on the board. That's one of his names, the High and Lofty One. And this is something he's going to say. So he's speaking. Thus says the High and Lofty One, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. How do you inhabit eternity? What's it take? How big is eternity? What is eternity? I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Nor, uh, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. 
high and lofty one who inhabits infinity. And he has with him the humble and the contrite ones. What does he mean? He started it out by saying that he is the high and lofty one who inhabits infinity. And then he says, with the humble and contrite ones. Who is he talking about? Why does he put it in that order? Why does he put it in that context? You must know that he is infinite God, that he is the maker of time, that he is is the one who is high and lofty and holy, and that he will revive the spirit of the ones that believe that. There are many who don't. Okay, now Psalms. Let's go to Psalms 19. What are we studying today? We're finding God. How hard is that? Not very hard. 19, 1 through 4, Psalms. The heavens declare the God of, I'm sorry, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. The firmament, the ubiquity of law is in His creation. Subatomic diameter, the duality and the observer effect, the fact that The Greeks thought atoms were not divisible. Let me go back to that. That's what Adam meant to them. Are atoms divisible? Yes, the Greeks were wrong. Again. They were right on some things, wrong on other things. Psalms 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So let me lay that out for you. Everything you put on the internet, he sees it. Everything you do, say, he sees it. He hears it. It is impossible for him not to. He is omniscient. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun. Okay, 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Okay, what did you just learn? That there are wise and there are simple. And he has to convert the simple to the wise. So what's the obvious applicable question to us? Which are we? Are we the simple or the wise? How long will you love being the simple? Proverbs 1.20, I think. Check it out. 22. Try to be in the wise column. Desire to be wise. The statute of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. Down here in 11... Be warned. There's a reward in keeping the commandments of God and being obedient to them. If there is a reward, then what's the obvious? There's a not reward. So what's the not reward? You'll find it. Go to Revelation. The law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandments, the fear, the warning, the reward. From those 
they form the baseline for chapter 10 of Edgar Andrews' Who Made God, which we can almost start to work our way through now. But first, if you remember from lecture 39, um, we've all got to get everyone to understand Turtles All the Way Up. Did everybody read Turtles All the Way Up? Very important to know your turtles. If you didn't read it, don't worry about it. We'll do it right now. Essentially, it comes from Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, that Edgar Andrews made fun of, which I always found that fascinating when I read that, that Edgar Andrews would make fun of Stephen Hawking's book. He said that this is a book that everybody bought and nobody read, because Turtles All the Way Up is on the first page, and so if you had read it, you would know Turtles All the Way Up. But no one ever knows it, because no one ever read Hawking's book, though everyone bought it and pretended they did. And I can see the same trend in and Edgar Andrews' book as well. Everybody has one, and nobody really reads it. And here's a problem. We have to make sure that doesn't happen. And, and I'm going to, like I said, I'll have to beat you. But anyway, this story is in Stephen Hawking's book, and it's supposedly true. But I suspect that that's not the case, that it is uh, simply a story made up entirely. But nonetheless, it's one that illustrates well a failure of logic. It is called the fallacy of infinite regression. And that's very important to you, the fallacy of infinite regression. Because where does that fallacy show up all the time? Where do I run into it over and over and over again on almost a monthly basis? I run into it every time I talk to an evolutionary atheist. They, bring, they come immediately to this fallacy. So here's how this story goes. Uh, it, what that is, by the way, really quickly, is the cause of the cause of the cause of the cause of the cause into infinity, infinite regression. In other words, what caused that? Well, this caused that. Well, what caused that? Well, this caused that. Cause, 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 cause into infinity. And using the, this regression, infinite regression as an explanation. Okay, that may mean nothing to you, but it's going to. So accepting the given and conceding that this exchange between this lady and this lecturer uh, occurred, and I don't concede that, but we will for the, for the fun of it. It goes something like this. A little old lady, after hearing an atheistic evolutionary lecture on astronomy, so she went to an astronomist who gave a lecture, and this astronomist um, had a position on the, on the uh, uh, he had a cosmological uh, structure, and he asserted that, uh, that it originated in a certain way. You can pick whatever way you want. But she listened to his non-God assertion, and she rose up to tell him that his rationale as to the origin of matter and to the origin of the universe and to the origin of time were ridiculous. So she stood up after hearing this lecturer, this astronomer, this Ph.D., and a little old lady stood up and said that his rationale was rid ridiculous couldn't have happened that way. So, obviously, he said, well, what is your, what, what are you going to uh, put in its place, or what are you going to combat my positions, my learned positions with? And she proposed that instead the earth was a flat plate supported on the back of a giant turtle. And the atheistic lecturer responded with derision. What, then, is supporting the turtle? Do you begin to see the fallacy of infinite regression? What is supporting the turtle? The little old lady shot back, obviously, another turtle. 
whereby the atheist uh, uh, astronomer mockingly continued with, and what is that turtle standing on? Whereby she replies, it's turtles all the way down, you idiot. Now, most people read that story and they think that the little old lady is some kind of, uh, what do I say, some kind of superstitious woman. But she wasn't. If you read it correctly, if you understand it correctly, what was she doing? She was telling him that his cosmological origin of the universe structure was essentially a giant turtle and it's turtles all the way up or all the way down, whichever way you want. Illustrating the point that the lecturer's presentation was exactly that of the turtle analogy, fallacy of infinite regression, something we're going to find quite common in atheistic philosophy or reductionism. And so you need to understand the principle of that just for now. Okay, with that out of the way, off we go into the mud of chapter 10. Now I'm going to pick up speed. And I'm going to cherry pick out things that I think are the most difficult to traverse. Um, So with that in mind, let's begin with symmetry. Symmetry is very important. First, you have to define symmetry. So I brought three simple ways to define symmetry. Okay? This billiard ball has high symmetry. What I mean by that is if I were to rotate it through its axis, which, by the way, is any position, and began to rotate it, and it didn't have the one on it. All it was 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 gold or white, whatever the case may be, one color. As I rotated it, you could not tell it was moving because it's the same on all sides no matter what I do with it. It has high symmetry. Does that make sense? Okay, I can... Get rid of the billiard ball. By the way, it's made in Belgium. It's worth about $450 per set. Okay. Notice Lori didn't even, no, no threat of her not catching that. Yeah, there's a lot of practice there, huh? Okay. Now, this is a hockey puck, obviously, and it has limited rotational symmetry. If I rotate it on this axis, you can tell that it is rotating, right? For the billiard ball, if I rotated it, you couldn't. It had high symmetry. This has um, uh, limited rotational symmetry. If I rotate it this way, you may not be able to tell that it is rotating. Okay? Limited symmetry. Look at that. The lady is good. Now, you've heard the expression, dumb as a bag of hammers, right? This is a hammer. It doesn't matter. It, It is so asymmetrical, so misshapen, that no matter which way I rotate it, you're going to tell that it is rotating. It has no symmetry. Okay? We throw that to her when she's down on the ground from 40 or 50 feet. We, we practice this all the time. We use sledgehammers at 40, 50 pounds. Okay, we don't do any of that, but we think about it. Okay, we don't think about it because we don't want to get in trouble. But symmetry is important because something has symmetry. No matter where you observe it from, it looks the same. What on that board has symmetry? This has symmetry. Law has symmetry. No matter where you observe it from, it is symmetrical. Irrespective of where you are in the universe, laws of nature, scientific law, it's the same. It Law has Perfect symmetry. I will submit again, 
All law is one law. What explains the symmetry? How did I get all law to be the same no matter where I look at it from? No matter where I am in the universe, it is identical. What explains that? How did that come to be? What's the next obvious question? Why is law so have, have this high perfect symmetry? But that's for another day. Okay? For now, any scientific experiment that is performed anywhere in the universe, the laws of science, the laws of nature, is the same. It's unchanged. It's immutable. What does immutable mean? It doesn't change. Law doesn't change. Law is what? Just like who? Would we expect that? Does he say so? It has, law has translational symmetry. Law is not affected as you move from one place to another. Not only does law have symmetry, but Mr. Einstein figured out, among other things, that time has symmetry. Okay? No matter where I look at time, it has, it is unchanged. Almost, but I'm going to say almost, Almost all the laws of science remain unchanged if time is replaced by negative time. What does that mean? Okay. This is the direction of time. Okay. This is the opposite direction of time or negative time. And this is positive time. If I take something, uh, some law of science, and I sent it back into negative time, it would remain unchanged. Time has symmetry with the exception of what? The second law of thermodynamics, or entropy. Now, who was here for the entropy lecture? Okay, three of you. Good. You'll have to go through it again. It was a lot of fun last time, wasn't it? It's going to be less fun this time. But you have to understand that entropy is how we can figure time out. Entropy means what? It means decay, or, or um, things naturally uh, go in towards chaos. High entropy means very low order. Low entropy means high order. If I look at my tree outside my house, and I can tell by the entropy, the change that's happening to it, its growth, its decline, its, its, uh, um, its disorder, as it ages, I can tell the determination, I can determine the direction of time or the arrow of time. And this is very, very important. I'm just, what am I doing today to you? I am slaughtering you because I know how important it is. I'm just throwing, not throwing, I'm placing gingerly in front of you very complicated, very important pieces of information that are making you drool and bleed from the eyes in order to get you familiar with the terms so that someday soon you will be able to go home. My goal for you is you're sitting on the couch and you're talking about the direction of time and entropy and how it applies biblically and scripturally and how it affects you. Okay, uh, Instead of watching Dancing with the Stars again. Now, let me repeat somewhat. The most obvious of the obvious questions. How did this symmetry of law and time come into being? How did it originate? Is, it, is there an evolutionary explanation for the symmetry of law and the symmetry of time? No. 
I'll help you. I'll jump ahead. No. How did the universe acquire symmetry? Where did it come from? What's uh, Why? Why did he do this? Why did he make law and time with translational symmetry? Why did he do that? It's obvious to me. But you have to answer that for yourself. Why did he do it? He put it in his he, he, he put it in his creation. Why? Now we got to revisit void zero and void one. Do you remember void zero and void one? Very important to know the difference between void zero and void one. That is Edgar Andrews' designations, and I've adopted them as my own, so that. If anyone says, why are you quoting Steve Chronister in Alaska? He'll have to defend himself, which I will find very interesting. Void zero, let's repeat it. Void zero is the pre-existent eternity, okay? That which existed before what? That which existed before anything was made. Who was there? God was there. He is in eternity. He said so. Isaiah 57:15. Right? He's the high and lofty one. He is in eternity. He inhabits it. So he was there when there was void zero, which means there was this absolute nothing. Now, what is void one? Void one is is that void or that space that's in our existing. Um, Creation, let me explain this a little bit. Uh, according to atheistic philosophy, okay, there was, a, there was an infinitely dense particle. There it is. Do you see it? Probably if you can see it, I made it too big. There was an infinite, infinitely dense. What does that mean? It means that it was very heavy and totally filled and it was microscopic. It was so tiny. And what happened to that? Because we have void zero. We have nothing. Absolute nothing. But this little tiny particle that was infinitely heavy, infinitely filled with, with material, what did it do? According to atheistic philosophy, what did it do? It exploded and they call that the what? The Big Bang. Boom, it exploded. And out of this little tiny particle, it contained, and this little tiny particle contained all matter, it contained all space, it contained all energy, and it contained time. That's atheistic philosophy. That's the Big Bang in a nutshell. So void zero has no physical properties, no material, and no time. Void one has empty space that is in our creation. The matter that is here, the energy. So, that's the difference. By the way, what does if void zero had nothing, what did it have? It did have something because I told you it had something. What did it have? It had God. John 4.24. So, void zero had God and void one has matter and also has what? God. Because you can't help but have God, right? So, so, void zero had the supernatural. And I like to call that the uh, metaphysical implications of void zero. But void one, again, has matter. And it has energy. And there is stuff in nothing, by the way. The, the nothing in space has stuff in it. And void one is within time. 
void zero before time. And, and okay, you with me so with all that? Those are your five things that you have to know today. Let me go over them. Ubiquity of law and time. The symmetry of both of them. I'm sorry, the ubiquity of law and the symmetry of law and the symmetry of time. Subatomic diameter or the movement at the microscopic level. The quantum motion or the quantum mechanics. Duality. The fact that everything has duality. Twofold nature. The observer effect. That when you observe something, it is, when you perceive something, when something is observed or perceived, perceived, then it exists. If it isn't observed, it doesn't exist. And then finally, the metaphysical implications of void zero. And the fact that void one has stuff in the nothing. Does that make sense to anybody? Pretend. Yay! Yay, thank you. Okay, now we go to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which states this, that uncertainty cannot be removed from the quantum system. Uh, this is a proven um, a principle, and I'll prove it to you next week. In other words, you cannot remove uncertainty from the subatomic reality. I'm going to speed ahead. You cannot know what God has done. Do you remember me reading that to you? Why did he make it so that there's an uncertainty principle? That he is the only one that knows where something is or how or where it's going. He is it. We cannot know that. And I have this uh, I have this Planck's constant that I brought on the board last time. I will give you Planck's constant right now as it is defined. It's an H, if you will. Actually, it's that form. You can call it an H. Heisenberg's formula states that we cannot know the position or the momentum of a given particle beyond a certain level of accuracy. We cannot know. No one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end, or what I call the the metaphysical implications of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And Heisenberg used Planck's constant for his formula. And he got Planck's constant from something called uh, thermal radiation. Have you heard me? Who was here when I did black body radiation? Okay, here we go again. Told you it's coming back. Jack's here, and he came up after the sermon, and he said, uh, "I was you were out in Girdwood or someplace, and you saw a band called the Black Body Radiation and Ultraviolet Catastrophe. Is that close? Did I get that close? Okay. Was I right about Girdwood? No. Oh, good for me. Oh, are they really? Well, there's tremendous wisdom there in this group of guys. They know that uh, thermal radiation, which is light emitted by a warm object, is very important. They know that Max Planck, when he had to wrestle with this, he began to tackle this puzzle of thermal radiation because classical physics was obviously wrong about light emitted by a warm object. And they call these warm objects, by the way, for simplistic purposes or for status purposes, a black body, or what I called or what I just said was black body radiation. Okay, now stay with me. I know this is tough. Max Planck knew, the man who came up with Planck's constant that Heisenberg used for his uncertainty principle, that Einstein used for his photoelectric effect, Okay, Max Planck knew that black body uh, radiation was very special. Something special was in here. Something, a mystery was here. It's called the first mystery of physics, and it led to the quantum hypothesis. 
Uh, let me explain it this way. There was no ultraviolet catastrophe. Because classical physics said that when warmth, when you heated a black body, when you put thermal energy into it, it radiates light. Black body radiation. And it did not result in an ultraviolet or a runaway condition. Max Planck knew classical physics was wrong. And then he knew that that meant that something was happening at the microscopic level that was different. And he began to realize this was going to change everything. Everything he thought was true was not going to be true. The heat-light relationship was revealing something profound. Truth was coming from the invisible. Here was his question. Why was it harder for an object when exposed to heat to emit an ultraviolet photon? That means nothing to you. I know that. But you see, classical physics said that when I heated something that I would get an ultraviolet photon out of it, and then I'd get so many of them that I would have an ultraviolet, which is a, uh, which is high light, right, if you will. I will have an ultraviolet catastrophe. I had an explosion. Everything would thermally run out of control, if you will. That's a simplistic way. And he looked at that and said, that's not happening because nothing is running out of control when we heat it. So why is classical physics wrong here? And he knew when he figured this out that he was going to change everything that everybody thought. And he was right about that. And he solved it. He solved it with his uh, Planck's constant. He figured out that energy was equal to Planck's constant times frequency. Now, I'm not going to do that for you today. Next week I will. But you need to know that after that mystery was solved, the mystery of black body radiation, the fact that there was no ultraviolet catastrophe, after that was solved, along came Albert Einstein, who was a patent clerk, 1905. He worked in a Swiss patent office. That's his job, Albert Einstein. And in 1905, it's called Einstein's miraculous year. He came up with E equals MC squared, his famous equation. He came up with the photoelectric effect for which he won the Nobel Physics Prize. And he came up with his special theory of relativity in one year, a patent clerk. And he knew that there was another mystery, and that was the mystery of the photoelectric effect because he knew that if he polished and he figured out that Max Planck, who discovered the solution to black body ultraviolet catastrophe radiation problem, he knew that he could take Planck's constant and apply it. This is a polished piece of metal. Think of it as as a really nice plate of whatever, silver or platinum. We'll use platinum because... Yeah, it's an experiment. I mean, I'm just making it up so we can make it very expensive and claim that I have some. And I'm going to polish my platinum. And I'm going to hit it with a light source. And that light source is going to hit it. And and the photoelectric effect says if this is in a vacuum, it's going to emit electrons. It's going to shake them loose, knock them off. Now, we use photocells. We use solar cells, right? I hit a polished piece of metal in a vacuum. Uh, with this light source, and I get these electrons to come out. But there's a mystery here. There's a mystery when light strikes a polished metal surface in a vacuum, causing the metal surface to emit electrons. The more light that I hit it with, okay, the more electrons I get. So the intensity of light causes more electrons to come off. Okay, what's the mystery? The mystery is, is it doesn't affect the speed at which they come off. They come off at the same speed. And no one could figure that out. 
Why was that happening? Einstein figured out that that, the solution to that was quantum mechanics, was Planck's constant. Heisenberg's and Planck's, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and Planck's uh, energy derivation. Anyway, Einstein figured out that if the frequency was raised, then the speed of the electrons coming off of the polished surface uh, increased. And he used quantum theory to do that. Faster moving light has more energy in it. And that it was a stunning development. And so I have Thomas Young. I add Planck to it. And I add Einstein to that. And we proved that light had wave particle duality. Light was both a particle and it was a wave, which meant that light, when it travels, it travels as a wave. But when it interacts, it interacts as a particle. Does that help you understand anything? You have to apply that to something. What do you apply it to? Let me say it again. When light travels, it travels as, as stuff-like, as a wave. But when it interacts, it interacts as a particle. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about you. Wave-like and stuff-like. I'm sorry, stuff-like and thing-like. Now, puzzle number three, heat capacity. How much energy does it take to raise an object one degree Celsius? Don't you love this? I'm going to go to classical physics number four, or puzzle number four. Classical Newtonian physics says that all atoms should implode within one millisecond. No atom can exist according to classical physics. All atoms will implode in one millisecond. The quantum physicists knew that classical physics was wrong again. It was wrong on thermal radiation. It was wrong on uh, on uh, light. And it was wrong again here with regard to uh, atom, how atoms are made. Because atoms are stable. And how can this be? What does this matter to you and what does it prove to you? Here's what it does. When you understand everything I've said today, which isn't very much, it isn't very much. It seems like a lot, but it isn't. And just today, I, I gave you the terms. What will I do next time? Give you the terms again and I'll keep going. Pretty soon, you're going to read your chapter 2. You're going to read your chapter 10 again and you're going to get it because it proves something to you. What does it prove? Genesis 2.7 You're a living soul. A living soul. Genesis 1.20 and 1.24 Cross out creature there. It's living soul. Nefesh Kaya. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are Psalms 139.14. And what does that mean to you? Once I can prove to you that you are a living soul, what have I done to you? I have told you that you have responsibility and accountability. What does that mean? You're in trouble. That's what it means. You have to do what? You have to change what you're doing and what you're thinking and what you believe and what you think is important. You have to become spiritually minded. Because why? There's a reward for that. 
There's a judgment for the other. There's a standing coming before our Creator. You might have heard me read that to you. There's a judgment and accounting. The wise understand this, Daniel 12.10. The foolish say there is no God, Psalm 14.1, Romans 3. And you have to decide. Once you know you have a soul, you can never doubt it again. That's what I'm doing to you. Once you know it, not just believe it. I don't care if you believe it. That's cool. But remember, we founded this church on two principles. Do you want to feel or do you want to know? I want you to know. I want you to be one of the wise. I don't want you to be one of the foolish. Are you going to be one of the foolish wicked or one of the wise that understands? That's where we're headed. You will get it. And then what must you do? You've got to teach somebody. Let's rise and be dismissed.